Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. S is for sanctification. An important word, but a word that I think we only ever encounter in the context of the church. I can't think of a way in which we use it in everyday speech. But we have a problem here. It's the same problem we had when we did C is for Credo. Do you remember that episode? If you haven't listened to it, I want to encourage you to do so. Frankly, it was one of my favorites. What we saw there was that the two Greek words, pistis and pistuo, which are obviously part of the same word group, get translated very differently in English and don't look like they're part of the same word group. The verb form pistuo means to believe. The noun form pistis means, or at least gets translated in the English Bible as faith. We read then in the same sentence those two words, faith and believe, and in our English Bible, don't realize that we're reading two very connected words, two words from the same Greek word group. The same thing happens here. We have the noun form, hagios, the verb form, hagiadzo, obviously related to each other. The verb form hagiadzo gets translated sanctify, to sanctify, and the noun form hagios gets translated holy. You would never guess in reading your English Bible that those come from the same word group, holy and sanctified, but in fact they do and they have behind them the same concept. The word holy comes down to us through the Old English, and means something exactly like the Greek word hagios. It means something set apart from something else, obviously, for a specific purpose, and that is almost always a religious purpose. The word is used both in the New Testament, a lot, and in Greek literature, non-biblical literature. In Greek literature, it refers to a temple or an altar or a vessel that is designated as holy, In this case, it is set apart from other buildings or other vessels for the purpose of religious worship. In the New Testament, the word holy, the word hagios, means set apart from what? Set apart to what? In the New Testament, it means set apart from sin to the purpose of serving God. Thus, in the New Testament, holy means something set apart, and sanctified or sanctify is the process of setting apart. What I want to do in the rest of of this part of S is for sanctification is look at three tenses, past, present, and future. You'll understand what I mean as we go through this. Theologians talk about sanctification as a positional truth. That means it happened in the past. I'm going to read a portion of a few verses here that will illustrate that. Acts 20.32, all those who are sanctified, that means that they are currently sanctified. It is something that happened then in the past. In the Greek, this is the perfect tense. Greek has 
oodles of verb tenses. It drives beginning Greek students crazy. It certainly did me. But the perfect tense means something that happened in the past with results continuing into the future. So that when Luke uses all those who are sanctified, he is describing an event that happened sometime in the past with results continuing. I could take that and change it to you are sanctified. It is something that happened, if you're, if you're a child of God, it is something that happened in your past at a point in time and continues to be true. You were set apart from sin by God. It is a passive verb. So whereas the perfect tense describes when it happened, the passive voice, that's what it's called, the passive voice tells us someone did it to us. We did not do it ourselves. It was done to us. At some point in the past, as a child of God, you were set apart from sin. You were made holy, and that was done to you by someone else, and obviously by God. Acts 26, 18 among those who are sanctified. That again is a perfect. Uh, the tense is perfect. It is something that happened in the past with results that continue. It is once again a passive. It was done by someone else to us. Among those who are sanctified. See, that, that's kind of an interesting question. Do you use the past tense, who were sanctified? But that makes it sound like it's all in the past. We don't have a good way to do this in English. We can't say to those who were sanctified because we still are. We can't say someone, uh, those who are sanctified because that leaves out the fact that it happened to us in the past. The Greek has the perfect tense for that. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to those who are sanctified, perfect, passive, to those who were at some point in time with results continuing, they are still holy, and it was done to them. They were sanctified. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6-11, you were sanctified. Okay, now this one's a little different, interestingly enough. Here, instead of the perfect tense, he uses the aorist tense. It is, it, we, we know from those earlier passages that we are still holy, we are still set apart. But here Paul wants to point, uh, draw our attention to a specific part of this process. He uses, instead of the perfect tense, he uses the aorist. And in the Greek, the aorist is a point action in the past. It is something that happened at a particular point in the past. You were sanctified. Paul there says that there was a point in the past when this happened to us. It's still passive. It is not something we did. It's something God did to and for us at a point in the past. The moment I accepted Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross as payment for my sins, then I am made perfect. I am made holy and righteous and completely and thoroughly set apart from sin. Thus, the New Testament writers can use the perfect tense to describe an event that happened in the past with results continuing, or in the case of 1 Corinthians 6, an event that happened in the past and drawing attention to that event. In both cases, we are hagios. We are set apart from sin. We are therefore righteous. Because we have no sin, we are righteous. We are holy. Okay, that's the past. 
That's what, what theologians call positional truth. It is our state. We are holy. We have been made passive, holy, an event in the past with results continuing into the present. The next way that the Bible talks about hagios or hagiadzo is using the present tense. Here the verb tense is going to change. Theologians talk about this as experiential uh, sanctification. We had positional sanctification. God made it our position in Christ. We are. Here is we are being. It is experiential. It is a current process. Listen to this. Hebrews 2.11. Those who are being sanctified. Now it's not an aorist or a perfect looking to the past. It is a present tense verb. We are being sanctified. Interestingly enough, it is still passive. You can hear that, can't you? We are being sanctified by someone else. And once again, it's by God. Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and accept, there's that word, holy and acceptable unto God. That doesn't sound like it has anything to do with sanctification, does it? But in the Greek, it does. It's the same thing. You, present your bodies. Now here, it's not passive. Here, it is active. It is something that we do, not something done to us but something that we do. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart from sin. Paul is saying, you are holy. You are sanctified. Now, live it out. Be what you are. I love that. 1 Peter 1.15, be holy in all your content, uh, conduct, present tense, it is the experiential sanctification that's the focus here. 1 Peter 1.16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Present tense. This is experiential sanctification. We live it out. Okay, then we get a future tense sanctification. This is what theologians call ultimate sanctification. I have been sanctified, positional. God sees me as holy, as separate from sin. That's why I'll never come under any judgment, because I'm holy. I'm separate. He did that to me in the past when I received him and what he did as my salvation. He separated me from all my sins. He forgave me all my sins. I have no contact with them anymore. And therefore, I am in my standing, my position before God is separate from sin. It is holy. It is righteous. Now, I am engaged in, at least I'm supposed to be, experiential sanctification. I'm supposed to be eliminating sin from my life. See, there's a problem. I still live in my flesh. I am not a sinner, but I do sin. And I'm supposed to separate myself from that. I'm supposed to get rid of the sin in my life. That's experiential. Now what we get is ultimate sanctification. That is when I die and I get rid of this flesh with its innate corruption and its tendency, its desire to live in the sins of the past. And I am taken to God, given a new body with, with no pollution by sin, we call this ultimate sanctification. Jude 24, he will present us blameless. We will be without sin. We will be completely and fully um, 
sanctified, and now what I am positionally will be my experience. So we've got past tense, positional sanctification, present tense, experiential sanctification, living a life that purges sin, and then ultimate sanctification at the resurrection when all sin is gone permanently and eternally. This is going to be a shorter part one. That's okay. There's no clock on this except in my head. And frankly, part two may be a little shorter also, but I'm interested to talk with you about a couple of things in part two. Before we leave part one, however, I want to, I want to bring up something that, to me at least, and, and probably to you, is going to seem just too bizarre to be real, but trust me, it's real. Talking about sanctification, there is within Christianity, as you know, there's a a wing of Christianity that is Pentecostal or charismatic. And not all, but some of those at that end of the theological spectrum believe that sinless perfection is possible in our current experience. That if we are careful and dedicated and sincere enough We can purge all sin from our lives now, and our present tense sanctification can be full and complete. When I first encountered that, I I was just blown away. I encountered it in my reading, not in in any given person. But that explained why, and maybe you've come across uh, across this, there are some doctrinal statements in churches or organizations that will specifically state that we believe that sinless perfection is not possible in this life. And it may go on to say something like, it is the Christian's burden and responsibility to uh, try to purge sin from their experience, something like that. But that ultimate sanctification won't be realized until we are with God. Uh, That's where that comes from. Now, it's less common now than it was, let's say, 50 years ago. Um, Pentecostalism, like a lot of things in life, gradually goes through modifications. I suppose you could say the same of evangelicalism, of fundamentalism. So the view that we can get rid of all sin in our lives and live lives of, and the term that's used by them is sinless perfection, is frankly bogus. I mean, it's nonsense. And When I came across someone who actually held to this view, I thought, you don't live with yourself, do you? Uh, Or you're not paying attention. What's going on here? There's not a whole lot of self-awareness. The trick is to redefine sin, and I realize that's what's going on here. Um, The only thing that they consider sin is the most egregious, the worst. Okay, that's in air quotes. You understand what I mean. But we're talking adultery or theft or robbery or the kinds of things that show up in the Ten Commandments. Things like greed and envy and pride, those aren't real sins. They just put those in a special category of saying, yeah, I'm still working on living the Christian life to its fullest. However, I have purged sin from my life. That's nonsense. And the Bible makes it clear. Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good things. There is some debate whether Romans chapter 7, where he describes his inner battle 
is written um, as, as a retrospective looking back on his pre-salvation uh, experience, his pre-salvation life, or whether it is his current experience. I just know that when I read Romans 7, that's my experience. That is my life. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And the things that I want to do, those are the things I do not do. And then he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think that a case can be made for Romans 7 being pre-conversion or post-conversion equally well. But what I know is, the Bible tells me it is my uh, calling as a child of God to live up to who I am positionally and what I will be eventually when I am in heaven. That my current experience, um, I am to work with the Holy Spirit and just, just knuckle down, buckle down and do it or don't do it as the case may be. Do you remember that song? Anyhow, here we are. Now we're going to call this part one to a close and move into part two. I want to have what I guess I would consider a fireside chat. So we'll see you on the other side.